It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is John Case, Chief Executive Officer of Acumatica. John brings nearly three decades of industry leadership in cloud services, software product management, marketing, partner sales, digital promotion, and brand development to his role as CEO. Before joining Acumatica, John served as President and CEO of Unify Square, a leading provider of operations and performance management software and cloud managed services. That business was sold to Unisys. John also spent almost 17 years at Microsoft in a variety of executive level positions, including Corporate Vice President of Office and Office 365, where he spurred the digital transformation of Microsoft's most successful cloud business and Vice President of the Worldwide OEM Division in Marketing and Sales, where he jointly oversaw the global distribution and reseller channels for Microsoft. John has his Bachelor of Science in Economics from Williams College and his MBA from the Tuck Business School at Dartmouth. John Case, welcome into the corner office. Thanks, Brandon. It's great to be here. Where does the uh, where do we find you on the podcast today? I am in my office in the corner of my building in Kirkland, Washington, just outside Kirkland, Seattle. Washington. Nice, nice. Now you know the the weather in the Northwest typically doesn't change much in the fall, but sometimes you get a little cold snap. Has that happened up there yet? Uh, I think our pivot from to the rainy season is upon us. Uh, it's <laughs> starting literally today. It, 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 you know, we've had a bit of a dry spell, but it's a, it, the rain looks like it's here for the next week or two. So Got it. it's normal, Got very it. normal up here. Yeah. It stays in for a few and months. And it's cold. Yes, and it's, it's cold. cold. Yeah, I went to school in Oregon after growing up in Southern California. Right. It, it was a great place to be to study, but, uh, you know, nice place to visit every now and then. <laughs> I prefer the sunshine. I'm down in Florida today and great to talk to you literally almost from the opposite side of the country. One of mm. modern technology. But what we want to do, as we all do with all our guests, is really kind of start with your early years. And tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like, John. That's great. Yeah. No, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. So not far from where you are in Florida. I um, grew up there, you know, it, you know, with a very Southern family with, you know, grandparents, aunts, uncles, you name it all around. And uh, I was the, the big... Uh, uh, trader for leaving the South to go to the Northeast for college. So that was when I, that was the last time I lived there was in the, the late eighties. It sounds like you lost your twang as well, or did you never have one? You know, I, I it does occasionally reemerge when I go back for a, a day or two, but it's right. mostly gone. I would say, yeah, you'll, you'll hear some, you'll hear some ain'ts and some other words occasionally, but other than that, no, it's, it's been pretty much wiped out. What did mom and dad do? 
Uh, that's a great question. My dad was an actuary, worked at different companies, building things like pension plans. Uh, and then when he was about 50, he sold, he left corporate life and went and bought a small hotel up in the mountains, yeah. uh, which he ran for 20 years. He's now retired. My mom, during that entire period, was a social worker and focused on childcare in uh, low-income neighborhoods, housing projects, uh, Native American reservations. And I used to go with her on some of those uh, outings. So she's cool. got a, a, you know, she's literally testified in front of Congress and things like that about childcare for uh, low-income uh, families and neighborhoods. Wow. Awesome. Great way to, to give back. Uh, siblings, did you grow up with uh, brothers and sisters? I have a younger brother, several years younger than me, who um, lives in Asheville, North Carolina. Got it. So he didn't get too far from home. <laughs> no, he did not. I'm the one that's I'm the one that apparently doesn't want to go back home and have gone to different co- corners of the country. Thinking back with, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting, the actuary, then going into entrepreneurism and, and mm-hmm. mother doing social work. What were some of the key lessons and things that you remember from mom and dad during those early foundational years? No, it's very interesting. I, I think, first of all, you know, I'll, I'll, they're very different depending on the person. Uh, I think my mom was always very interested in her church. Um, and that sparked a real interest in childcare, which started at our church. And then uh, she branched that out into realizing she could really be uh, like a help. And she worked for different foundations and organizations that focused on on, on children and children's rights. Uh, it was very influential to me. Still a lot of the causes I personally support are around, you know, kids like foster care kids and kids who have developmental challenges, kids who really can't advocate for themselves. Yeah. And so that I learned very much from her. And she, you know, would go door to door in places like a housing project and tell them about the free childcare. She just got set up at the church down the street. And I, I, again, I occasionally went along some of, on some of those and, and that included food drives and fundraising and all kinds of things. And that was very much her personal uh, mission in, in life. Um, and, you know, even, even after she retired, she ran the childcare at her little church in, in North Georgia, where she lives now, where they, my parents live now. So like, that was a very, you know, very much a lesson for me in like, what communities are really like and what neighborhoods are really like and how you know, there's different people of all, you know, types and economic, you know, situations and, and really being respectful of that and, and seeing how you could contribute. Um, my dad was, you know, again, corporate America. He worked at places like Coca-Cola, which everyone in Atlanta works at Coca-Cola at some point mm-hmm. and, and other companies like that. And then I think he reached a point where he sort of said that was enough for him. He'd done the corporate life, wanted to have more control, wanted to be, wanted to run his own business. Uh, and that's how we ended up. Um, my parents bought this hotel again, about an hour outside of the city and then ran it for, for 20 years and um, only just retired a few years ago. Wow. Uh, but for him, it was about, you know, taking his life and what, what he wanted to get out of it, and what he wanted to control, and what he, where he wanted to, to see himself uh, as opposed to answering someone else's orders. Did they live on property there at the hotel? They lived on the property. I, and I would go there in the summers and live on, like, there was like a big building in the center. It was actually, I call it a hotel, but it was really like an assortment of cabins in the woods. Resort. And, and there was a big building in the middle. The, the downstairs was kind of the office and the store and the upstairs was their home. Yeah. Cool. So some entrepreneurial uh, blood running in those veins as well. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Cool. Any other influencers, you know, coaches, teachers, things that you, uh, you know, remember that inspired you during those younger years? I mean, probably far too many to count, but I, I think that, you know, some particular ones I had, uh, you know, an aunt who I was very close to who was sort of like a, you know, a second family who, uh, you know, really was an influential person in my life thinking about academics, thinking about uh, growth, thinking about uh, community service. And she was very much a part of it for me. And then there were a handful of teachers I remember. Um, I went to a, you know, a school in Atlanta that was a very high academic achieving school and they pushed me very hard. I think if they hadn't pushed me 
the way they hadn't, I probably wouldn't have gone to the colleges I went to and the, you know, the jobs I've gotten. And I think they saw potential in me early on and they pushed me. And I, I, I greatly, you know, appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Were you a good student? Uh, I was a very good student. That doesn't always mean you're good at your job. You know what I mean? Like those are different <laughs> skills, but no, I was a very good student and, you know, a good test taker, all those kinds of things. So I had those advantages. Um, but, but I think that, uh, part of that is part of that comes naturally, part, you know, part of that is, are you just, you know, by nature, a good learner, but then there's also, do you apply yourself? Right. And, you know, I think it's a, those are, that's a journey that I think that balance is something we all have to strike. Did you get involved in other outside activities in school, you know, sports, music, theater, debate? Uh, many, um, but I would say uh, primarily of a couple types. Uh, yeah, a lot of sports. I was uh, uh, mostly played soccer through uh, uh, high school and, and and a little bit after, but I was also into many other sports like, you know, golf and I'm a cyclist and a bunch of things like that. So I had a whole bunch of activities there. And then I would say there was a bunch of community service activities that I did. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Habitat for Humanity I was very involved in, which of course is, you know, from the, from that area of the world uh, and some other things uh, that, that kind of were my outside sports and school focus. Right, right. Well, obviously, uh, former uh, President Carter from Georgia. Exactly. Very, very involved. In he, was my, he was my governor growing up. Yeah, right, right, right. And got very involved in that over the years. His, his uh, dear wife, Rosalind, just uh, you know passed a couple of days mm -hmm. ago. And mm -hmm. he, he's 99 years old, I think. Now. Amazing. It's an amazing family and amazing story. Yeah. Awesome. What about entrepreneurial things? You know, did you take any of dad's things, uh, you know, or, or the DNA in that regard, you know, have the, the paper route, you know, surf Christmas cards at Christmas or anything like that? Oh, well, uh, yeah. Many things. I mean, I, I had a, it's a great question. Actually. I didn't think about that. I had a, uh, I was the neighborhood, um, uh, lawnmower for a whole bunch of houses in the neighborhood. I was yeah. a very, I, I babysat for several families. Um, but then by the time I was in high school, I was mostly a soccer referee, which is hilarious to think about now. But, um, you know, I, I refereed kids soccer games for 15 years and that's how I made money on the side. So all that was, you know, various ways of kind of getting some independence, if, if you can think about it that way. Yeah. Uh, which my parents are very much into, like, you know, I had to buy my own car. I had to do like a lot of things like that, where they felt like independence was a life lesson they wanted to give me. Right, right. Was there this uh, kind of inspiration that, hey, you got to put money aside for college too? That's important. Was there a savings element growing up? Yes and no, but not in the way exactly you framed. My dad made it clear like, hey, look, we've done okay and I'll pay for your college. But anything you can earn in scholarships, um, I will give you as effectively your own starting you know, fund. Yeah. So, I, you know, that made me very interested in doing that, obviously. So, you know, went aggressively after academic scholarships and other things that sort of supplement, uh, you know, the fact that they, they were very graciously able to pay my tuition and room and board and books and whatnot. Um, and it wasn't until I was in college that they left Atlanta and moved to this hotel that I was talking about. Got so yeah. what's interesting is then coming home and spending a summer there, um, and helping him run that business, you know, I got involved in his books and I understand, understood how he did reservations and how he did advertising. And that was very educational too, because I was getting this kind of in school learning, but then it was coming home and seeing kind of what it was like to run a small business, which is, you know, just a very fascinating and different life. Did you do uh, W2 jobs while you're in college and high school? Uh, several. Uh, I worked at some software companies, ironically, which at the time I didn't think was even a possibility. Um, I worked at uh, a, a rental car uh, office and washed cars one summer. Uh, I mean, there's a whole long list of those. I mean, I, and then I actually did jobs when I was in college. I, I worked in the library. I worked as a tutor, uh, a whole bunch of things like that, where, you know, I, I think there was a very frequent, you thinking back on it now, I didn't think I was working that hard, but thinking back on all the number of things I was doing, it was a significant number. And, and those, those things added up and they all give you relevant life experiences. Well, you decided to go to Williams 
great city. It was actually a great, great college and great city, yep. Williamstown. My one of my daughters who actually went to, to Dartmouth, who we talked about uh, and, and rode crew there, was recruited by the crew team at Williams. I love that. I remember going, you know, around the campus and having a townie student that kind of gave us the tour. And right. I just fell in love with that place and you right. know, the great stories around it. How did you make that selection? You know, it's a big change from Georgia. Very. And, uh, you know, particularly the winters, I'm sure, which were, you know, quite alien to you having grown up in a in more of the south. Yeah, because it's both in a very rural place, you know, yeah. you know, many hours outside of Boston and, and actually a very cold place, as you're pointing out. You know, I think... Um, the, the, I mean, the, the private school I happened to go to was very academically focused. So there was a big push to get top students to top colleges. And that was, again, not something that a lot of kids had the uh, had exposure to, which was great for me. Um, there was definitely a push towards a, a select set of colleges that were that they had a good, strong pipeline into, of which Williams was not one. But when I did my tours and I did my interviews, and, you know, my parents, again, supported me in that and took me up there to see those colleges and whatnot. And sure enough, I, that's the one I fell in love with. Yeah. And um, so when they and so I, when that when they offered me admission there, it was a very easy choice. I, I think I felt like I wanted to go to a smaller college because I felt like I could it would be more personal. And I felt like I wanted to. Uh, go somewhere outside of a big city because I felt like I was going to be in cities for most of my life and, you know, various reasons, work, whatever. And I thought this was a chance to really kind of have a more pastoral environment. And that probably was more uh, coincidental than it was planful, you know, but that is how it happened. And ironically, my son is now making his own college choice. He's making the exact opposite choice, which is he wants <laughs> a, big, a big university in a big city. So it's interesting to sort of see how these, yeah. how the apple sometimes does fall far from the tree, but, um, that, but that was how I ended up there. And I think there, you know, there'd been one or two students from my school that had gone there before, but it was definitely out of the ordinary. Right. And that actually felt good to me. I actually liked that idea. Yeah. Cool. And you studied economics. Um, yeah. Tell me about some of the courses you took outside your major and were there any learnings that you took away from those? Yeah. Well, I was intending to kind of be an economics and math major. And then when I studied abroad my junior year, I couldn't do both majors. So I had to pick one. Um, so I did a lot of math as well, but I also continued language studies. I, you know, took German there. Um, I did a lot of work in art history, which I found fascinating. I'd never really had any exposure to. I found that very interesting and, and, and really fun. Um, did a lot of, I did, took philosophy courses, psychology courses, political science courses. I mean, the whole benefit of that kind of liberal arts education is you can get exposure to things that wouldn't necessarily be in your day-to-day -day life. Um, economics, you know, was more theoretical there than it was practical. So you're studying you know, demand curves and macroeconomic, you know, variables and whatnot. So I can still relate today to, you know, what's in the news about interest rates, but right. it, it isn't like that's entrepreneurship either. Like you're not really getting that exposure at that kind of college. So you had to, again, do things outside the school that were more about uh, work and roles, but, but the school itself, I mean, again, I think my study abroad year, I spent a year at Oxford. My study abroad year was probably the most um, influential experience I had in, in, college because it was such a different environment. I got to see a different kind of students and a different kind of university and saw, saw how things were taught differently and was able to study, you know, Anglo-Saxon history and was able to study, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the works of uh, Italian authors, you know, I mean, things that I just wouldn't have done at Williams. So yeah. that was great for me too. I ended up in getting to go to both to two different universities effectively right. and, uh, you know, greatly valued that. Yeah, it's lovely. And you, you worked for a couple of years before you went on to talk and, and got your yep. MBA. Tell us about what that first job was and coming out of. Uh, yeah. You know, I think there was a there. Some of those colleges have this path where you go into things like management consulting and investment banking. And I didn't know any better. And so I did the management consulting route. 
and uh, worked at a company called Monitor Company, which is a, very similar to like a Bain or a McKinsey. Right. And uh, now it doesn't exist anymore. It was bought by Deloitte many years ago. But uh, it was kind of a boutique consulting firm, a couple hundred people, did work for massive companies all over the globe. And for me, it was... Um, it was both, uh, you know, a prestigious job, which was interesting, but I, I thought of it more as kind of this business, uh, uh, like almost introduction to what global business was really like. Because I got, again, I got very little of that at Williams by design. And so that job allowed me to do it. And, you know, they're not looking for people that have, especially starting jobs, not looking for people that have great history and background. They want people who have intelligence and smarts and are able to go off and, and chase things. And, but, but in the course of doing that, I not only worked for, you know, giant companies, I got to live in Asia for a year. I spent mm. a year traveling around Africa, uh, you know, again for work. So, so I, you know, was, I had these really interesting kind of corporate experiences while being a consultant. And I think that that was a great three years. And at the end of three years, I was ready to be done with that. Like it was, that was enough. Like, I, you know, I think that that kind of exposure in it's, it's super, uh, educational, like you learn a ton, but then you realize quickly, if you're like me, that what you want to actually do is own a problem and be an operator. And that, that was more compelling to me. So I loved being an advisor. I got a lot out of that, but it, at some point the learning was going to expire. And that, so that was my first role, um, kind of three years doing that. And that was fun. Yeah. Uh, but I left there, there was actually a year in between. I left there to go work at a telecom startup, um, before business school, because I just, I needed, a, I needed another experience. And I actually, intentionally declined business school and then didn't think I was even going to go hmm. and, and went and did something else. So that's something else into, you know, becoming part of a bigger company and it wasn't great fun, but uh, it was, that was also very useful for me of having two experiences prior to business school. So you kind of had vaguely in your mind that you'd go back and get your MBA. When you at some point. Yeah. yeah. At some point that was always my, uh, that was always my thought. What was uh, kind of thing a year sooner than I thought, or two years yeah. sooner than I thought. What was the trigger experience where you kind of said, okay, now it's time time to leave that company or yeah, time, time, to, time to, to go back and get, yeah, time to go back. Yeah. I mean, it was always sitting there as a thing I wanted to try. Um, and, and I, I think again, some of those things are just, uh, you see your peers doing something and you think that's normal, uh, right. which is always a learning, but, um, you know, for me, I, I, again, I left consulting, went to this small company and the team I went to work for eroded very quickly and it got purchased and moved up into a bigger thing. And the company eventually now is Verizon. It was, it was called Bell Atlantic back then. I was right. starting, I was in a very kind of a very startup part of it. And uh, it just, it, it wasn't the experience I wanted. Yeah. And so as I thought about, you know, okay, a year later, I was in a kind of a toxic work environment, you know, big kind of corporate America work environment that wasn't healthy. And I thought, what would I go do? And I could have gone and got another job, but I thought, no, no, no. I, I, this experience has been educational. I now want to go to business school and, and see it. And it, the, the, really the trigger was when the people I went to work with all were leaving too. Uh, there, there kind of wasn't the community of the team I wanted to be in. And it just wasn't, it wasn't the right environment for people who worked and thought like I did. And so that was, you know, it was easy to leave. The question was then what were you going to go do? Culture is so important, isn't it, John? So and, important. You know, and when yeah. you're young in your career, it's kind of hard sometimes to see that. Yeah. But I think for our listeners that are, you know, kind of in that early stage of their career, you know, if it doesn't feel right, <laughs> it ain't going to change. You, you often know, you know, one of the things I, I coach people on all the time is you often know in your gut or in your heart yeah. what, what the right decision is. Sometimes it's hard to make that decision, but more often than not, you get it right. And, and so trust that instinct is, is something yeah. that I talk about a lot with people. Yeah, I love that. So why Tuck? Why Dartmouth? Uh, I think, uh, well, first of all, 
it, it feels it felt a lot like the the kind of business school version of Williams College, right? Yeah. So small smaller university, you know, kind of out in the woods, whatever, um, which I quite liked. But second of all, I think it was um, at the time, especially and still to some is some extent the case. It was a rigorous environment. It, it Tuck was intentionally trying to teach um like computational skills and math skills and economic skills and it, it was intended to be rigorous it was not intended to be a two-year uh kind of stint of of community it was meant to be a rigorous and that appealed to me at the time right. um and I, I think that was true i think you know you we took very serious econometrics classes and learned a lot about how to you know do math calculations for things like option values you know detailed things that probably today would be more automated but at the time that felt compelling to me and um but but i also liked the size and i liked the community and i liked the again the the, the environment and the location and all those things uh, i love dartmouth you know i i i love going back there great and place. um it's a it's a great place yeah i, I love it and I, I if i if i were Again, I, I would have loved to push my son to a school like that or one of my, my, my next son. Maybe I will. But th that's not what his, what his interests were. But that <laughs> to me is like a welcoming and thriving academic environment. Right. And uh, Dartmouth led you to Microsoft. Is that right? I mean, did, right. You, did yeah. you? Yeah. Right. So uh, that was a, a direct job you took coming out or was there a bit of a path before you moved up to Washington? Uh, I did a summer internship at Microsoft first. Oh, so, so they came it. and recruited on campus for summer interns. And I sort of felt like. Hey, you know, I, I, I already had the idea that I wanted to get into the technology world. This is the late 90s. So really sort of students like me were only just beginning to explore what life would be like in, you know, sort of the tech world. Now it's obviously this super well-known path, but in the late 90s, it was not. Yeah. Um, and so I, I sort of felt like a Microsoft summer internship, like summer in Seattle, like what could be wrong with that? So <laughs> I, I interviewed for it and luckily got it. And um, yeah, and then and then had a good enough summer that they offered to let me come back, and and that's how that happened. So yeah, I spent a summer here before I lived here, um, and summer in Seattle, if you've spent here, is basically the the most perfect environment Beautiful. you can possibly imagine, yeah. and it looks nothing like the environment in November. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you sort of it's, it's a lot like Scandinavia that way. It yeah, it's, it's a great recruiting tool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, was it Balmer or Bill at the at their helm those days? Uh, Bill was the CEO, and Balmer okay. became the CEO not long after. Yeah, got it, got it. And uh, the the med uh, the the northeast northwest stuck to you. Obviously, you've been yeah, there ever since. And you know, again, tell us a little bit about the selection process of Microsoft. You know, the internship obviously was a, yep. a great experience, but big company, and you know, obviously yeah. grew grew a lot during the sixteen years. I think you were there. Mm -hmm. Is that about right? Yeah, I was there almost seventeen years. Yeah, 17 from years, yeah. yeah from ninety nine to twenty sixteen, roughly. Uh, yeah, I think you know, again, it was very easy to go there for the summer because it was just such an easy, I mean, obvious thing to try. And I had no tech kind of uh, credential. And so then it was very easy to say, I, I talked to 10 or 20 other tech companies, my second year business school about full-time roles. And I just couldn't ever decide um, if they were the kind of environment I would want or if they would even survive. Like some of them were very small fly-by-night kind of startups. And I sort of thought, okay, this Microsoft thing, I loved it there, liked the people I met, loved Seattle, um, would find it, you know, why would I at least go there for a couple of years and learn about the market before I picked another company? So that was right. my original model. My original model was go to Microsoft, work there for a couple of years. And I was in product management, which I quite like, and was in product management in some interesting parts of the company. And, and, you know, and then I got, and then I got to do more. And so the thing about that two years was it, it, you know, as I either performed well or got lucky or both, um, they kept giving me more cool things to do. Right. So, uh, you know, I got to, 
pick some fun stuff. I, I got to try, you know, I worked on the developer platform for a long time. I worked on kind of the future of, of uh, the, you know, our, our, our server tools for a long time. I got to work on, uh, you know, what was happening with uh, our device sales and phones for a period of time. Like I, wow. I ran a sales team. Like, so I, they kept giving me more options to do things. And the advantage of a big company like that is, again, if you're successful and you're, you, you can thrive in that environment, you get opportunities to do very different kinds of things. It feels right. fresher than just saying you're there for 20 years. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, my last two jobs there were, you know, one was running a global devices sales team where I was going mostly to emerging markets to talk to very small companies about doing things with Microsoft. And then the second one, the next one was running the global office business, um, you know, sort of sales and marketing side for office, a $32 billion business. Um, you, you don't get any chances like that. Right. So, so it, it, that was the, 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 yes, it was a big company and I eventually tired of that in a bunch of ways and probably stayed a few years longer than I meant. But at the same time, I kept getting really interesting things to do. And, and that's really what drives me personally. Yeah. Did they give you leadership responsibilities pretty early on there? Yeah, I would say, you know, I started as a, as a team of one and probably within five years was managing 30 or 40 people. And then I think my last role was more, it was several hundred. Yeah. So, um, you know, and that, it, that, again, some of that's just luck at the right place, right time. Um, but some of it is, you know, are you proving that you can um, handle that kind of responsibility and that kind of decision making? And so, you know, I, I, I proved it enough that they kept giving me more, more options. More what, were some of the, what were some of the challenges, John, that you faced when you first started managing people? You know, managing people is so interesting. I had done it a bit when I was in consulting. So prior to business school. So you, I had done, I had managed a small team of three or four people through a couple of projects. Um, and so it, it, I'm glad I had that. Uh, I think at a place like Microsoft, what you find is you, you have, different types of people with very different skill sets. Consulting mm -hmm. was very homogenous um, skill sets. It's all, you know, sort of general business interested people. You get to Microsoft and you, you know, you might be managing an engineer, you might be managing a support person, you might be managing someone that just does sales. And you kind of have to learn to, to think about uh, how to manage different kinds of people. And you quickly have to develop your own kind of philosophy and style in terms of how you want to manage. Um, Microsoft is, has a lot of, is very prescriptive too, which is I think good and bad prescriptive in terms of the way they do rewards, prescriptive in the way they do job descriptions, uh, you name it. So you have to find right. a comfort zone between that prescriptive work, uh, which feels very big company, which it is, it is a big company. And then kind of how you can humanly connect to people. I mean, I'm a, one of my strong beliefs is that I want to connect to every person that works for me on a human level. I want to understand what makes them tick, what their style is, how they want to fit in uh, to a bigger process. And that I, you know, you can start with that with five people and think about your team that way. Um, and then when you get to 500 people, it's the same. You're, you, you might not know everyone as deeply uh, or at all, but you're, you're still thinking about, you know, do you treat each person kind of, again, on that kind of personal level, as opposed to making sure everyone fits into a box that you believe. And that's yeah. the way I manage now, even now, that's the way I manage. Over the course of your career, and, and specifically during these years at Microsoft, was there, you know, mentors that you sought out and people that kind of helped you along the way? And, and as well as did you mentor others? Was that part of the uh, the cultural environment there and what you thought was important to succeed? Uh, massively. Yeah, massively. I think there were uh, both mentors for me, you know, you know, much more senior people than me who were coaching me as to how, how I could grow my career. But um, I'm a very active mentor in, in multiple directions. I, I, I really like... Um, talking to people who have uh, interest in growth and learning and want to improve and want to understand what their gaps are. 
and helping them think through that. And so I, you know, I think when I left Microsoft, I still have uh, several dozen people I would consider mentees. Some are very active. Like I talk to them once a quarter. Some I don't talk to for a couple of years, but, but, you know, Microsoft has both formal and informal systems for that right. formal in that, you know, certain people of certain types of, you know, uh, performance are given formal mentorship. And I was in that program as a mentor, but also then, you know, I, I sort of collect a set of people either that maybe used to work for you or, or one of your peers recommends they get to know you or something, you have some common interest. Um, and I still talk to many of those people, even now, eight or nine years post Microsoft, I'm still talking to a lot of those individuals about their careers, awesome. about what they're trying to do, about their growth, um, not helping with their job, not helping with a specific task, but more like, what are your, what are your goals, ambitions? You know, what are you trying to learn still yeah. at this point in your life? Very active program in that way. Now you said almost 17 years there, or about 17 years. Yeah, and, about and that. Yeah. Didn't know if you left too early or too late, but you went on mm -hmm. and have had actually a, a previous CEO role prior That's to right. your current at Acumatica. Was that a hard decision to leave at that time? Um, in retrospect, it probably was. It didn't feel that way at the time. You know, I, again, I, I felt like I was probably ready to leave Microsoft a few years earlier, but mm -hmm. the, the role I had was so compelling and interesting that I just couldn't, that it was the right thing to do to stay. Yeah. Um, the company was then going through a set of kind of functional changes um, that didn't feel as appealing to me. I, I, I was in these general management roles where I could really kind of manage a left to right business. Um, and that was less and less true. Um, there, the, you know, response was being pulled away from some leaders and put in functional teams and you would lose your PR team or your website team or your whatever team. And you would have to go work with other people to get minor things done. And it just didn't appeal to me as much. Um, I could have, I certainly could have stayed. I had options to stay. Um, but the role that I was in was no longer kind of one that I exactly would have wanted. And so that allowed me, and I took it, I took a sabbatical, which one of the things that used to get to Microsoft was occasionally take a sabbatical. I had, I'd never taken one in 17 years. So I took one and, at, and through that process, both myself and the company kind of came to this conclusion, like, Hey, you know, it probably is the right time for you. And so I very happily stepped away. Um, and you know, it, it, I, and without another job lined up, I, I had been interviewing for some roles on the sabbatical, but none of them felt right. And, um, just happily stepped away and realized I could do that for a while. Um, and then I ended up taking 10 months off to find my next job. Like I was very intentional about not working for a period of time and letting my brain process what I'd mm -hmm. gone through and process what I wanted to do next. And, and that was, that was, a, I'm very glad I did that. It was actually very valuable for me to have done that. And that became Unify Square. Now, did you go there as, as president and CEO or did you come in in a C-suite position? And no, I, I came in as CEO. Yeah, no. So, yeah. The, 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 you know, one of the things that, that I hadn't talked about with you is when I was at Microsoft, especially the last five years I was there, I'd done a lot of uh, angel investing, startup investing, mm -hmm. and had gotten much more involved in kind of the startup community. Right. And so was had some connection there. Um, Unify Square, I did not have any connection to, but it, it, I'd, I'd given a lot of thought to what small companies looked and felt like. And um, that that was a nice balance for me with what was going on at Microsoft, you know, the giant company level. And um, Unify Square was a company I was somewhat aware of at Microsoft. It was a, a, a bit of a partner of the company and particularly one of the businesses I worked in. And probably about six months after I left Microsoft, um, the board of that company reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking for a new CEO. Uh, would you consider that? And mm -hmm. so that that became that role. And I actually both invested in the company, became one of the largest investors in the company and took over the company uh, at the time. And it was a bit of a turnaround. So it wasn't like a, a high flying startup. It was a bit of a turnaround and that appealed to me at the time, yeah. but it was also a really good chance to break into the CEO job because it was, those are hard to break into. It's right. not an easy thing to get. 
And so that was a really useful, you know, moment for me. And again, it was about, I started talking to them probably six or eight months after I left Microsoft. I, at that point, had decided to cut off all communications with large companies. I'd, I'd been in interview loops with the Salesforce and Amazon, Google. I just decided that wasn't for me yeah. and was going to find something kind of small to midsize when that came to me. And then that company was sold, I guess, successfully yep. to Unisys. And then That's not correct. too long thereafter on to Acumatica. And you've been there about almost two years, right? Coming Almost, yeah. A little more than, yeah, about a year and three quarters thereabouts. Yeah, that's Tell right. Tell us a little bit about what you folks do. Acumatica is a cloud ERP company. So we make um, business management software for small mid-market businesses. And these are companies, you know, call it, you know, 20 to 500 employees, maybe they're 20, 30, 40, 50, $100 million in revenue. And it's kind of an underserved market segment. And you can think of ERP as things like SAP or, you know, IFS. These are companies that sell to giant multinational corporations. Mm. And you think of small businesses that run accounting on things like QuickBooks, but there's really kind of an underserved segment in the middle. And that mid-market segment is massive. Uh, it's all over North America and they don't have many, I would call tools that are custom built for their kinds of environments and their kinds of needs. Yeah. So Acumatica is a business software solution for those kinds of companies. Uh, they can run their accounting on us, but also things like their inventory and their warehouses and their manufacturing. And it's expressly written for that customer demographic size. And we are a very fast growing company, about 10 years old, or sorry, a little more than 10 years old, and one that's rapidly, you know, kind of um, becoming a major force in ERP and business management software. It's a great market sector to work in. Uh, you know, we shared this a little bit because our, right. our search practice is also focused on middle market. And, you know, it's fun. You know, there are privately held companies, a lot of sole proprietorships, family owned businesses. And, you know, it's just kind of about having fun and making money, right? You know, they're out there serving their customers in such a way. And wow, what an amazing technology to bring to them because I know, you know, how undeveloped, I guess is the right word. So many mm -hmm. of their practices and processes mm -hmm. are. That's fabulous. How many employees? That's right, eh? uh, we will be approaching 700 employees this year. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Great. And did you take over from a founder or they'd had a, a, an outside CEO before you came in? Uh, well, no, a little bit of both. The the found, One of the founders is still here. He's the CTO of the company, but he was never the CEO, but he's still here just down the hall from me. Um, and the CEO I took over from was employee like number 50. So it wasn't quite the founder, but he was, he'd been here for eight or nine years and he was ready for his next, you know, kind of, kind of phase of life. And right. so for me coming off of a successful company sale and having kind of done that, finished that process off, this is a very good fit. Um, you know, you know, and so they, I, I'm here to kind of take the company to the next phase of growth. So I was, you know, roughly employee number 500 thereabouts. Right. Wow. And, um, that's, those are interesting milestones to think about for any company like ours. How would you say your leadership uh, styles evolved over time? How has it evolved? I mean, I used to think it was all about me solving problems. You know, like mm -hmm. you, when you when you come out of these, um, you know, universities and academic environments, it's all about you know, can you are you the smart guy? I think now I'm much more about people. I'm much more about culture. I'm much more about um, the team. And I think that that is the secret to any good executives, much less CEOs, success is how good are you at attracting. Uh, and enabling and inspiring people because they are much better at their jobs than you would ever be in their in their shoes. And I, I think that is a realization that all of us get to eventually as, as we get older. Um, I think I got to it fairly early. You know, it was a big part of my Microsoft career and success. But uh, I think that my style is very much one where I want, I, you know, again, I want people to feel like I'm managing them and, and optimizing for their unique growth and talent. 
and, and how they fit into a bigger hole. And I, I don't think I was quite as uh, clear about that, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago as I am now, but it's very much now how I think we will succeed. What do you think is most unusual or perhaps unique about Acumanus culture? Our culture. Well, I think what's interesting and unique about our culture is that we are, uh, first of all, very community centric. When I say that, what I mean is we are a company of a certain size, but we have hundreds of partners and thousands of people around the world that are selling and supporting and building Acumatica. So mm-hmm. it, it doesn't feel like us. It feels like we're a, we're a huge entity of a community of individuals and we relish that. We want to mm-hmm. we want to thrive on that. And I think that that is something that our partners are very much attracted to, many of whom have come from other software companies or other even ERP publishers and had a very negative experience. We feel like we want them to have a very positive experience. And so here, what are we? You know, we are we, we are we are positive. Uh, we are enthusiastic. Uh, we want people to be successful of all types. We want our partners to be wildly successful and we optimize our business for that. And our theory is if we can, if we can create that leverage point with our community, our channel, our developers around the world that work on our platform, third party developers who work on our platform, um, we can really be much bigger than the sum of our own parts. And that's really is the secret to our growth is that, is that community. And that, I think that is a lot of companies say that, um, but it is very much our lifeblood. And it was, it was very apparent to me about a week into the job, how uh, deeply held that belief is and how important that is to the company, how that is basically our secret to success. Company culture really does permeate from, you know, the uh, corner office and the, the, the C-suite. Agreed. How do you do that? You got 700 employees globally, nationally. I mean, uh, you're dispersed, I'm sure. We certainly are. Nationally. And, and, you know, today with obviously a lot of remote work and people in hybrid positions, how do you go about doing that? How, what's your what's your secret sauce in, in getting yeah. that message across? No, I'll give you some facts that you won't believe how complex it is. Yeah, about, <laughs> uh, so those oh, that number of people, about two thirds are, in and around an office and about one third are fully remote. Um, of those two thirds, you know, we're coming in one or two days a week. So it's not like we, we don't, we don't have, we don't mandate attendance. So yeah, culture is a very hard problem. And I actually think when I got here in the middle of COVID, frankly, um, our culture had atrophied to some extent mm-hmm. because we had hired a bunch of people that had no connection to other people and didn't know the company. And so I went on a very uh, intentional uh, both travel, you know, journey to every part of the world where we have people. And I'll tell you those on that list and you won't believe it in a minute. Um, but also meeting as many people as I could. Like I had a very intentional 60 or 90 day plan to rally folks, get them to kind of be more present and aware of each other, um, set up kind of global environments. Um, but I'm also then very reliant on the leadership of the company to do that too. So I, you know, I, I need the sales team to have a very strong culture. I need the marketing team to have a very strong culture. So I need those individuals to care about it as much as I do. You know, our people are like, we, I'm here in Kirkland, but it's a, a you know, a relatively small office, maybe 10% of our team. Um, we have a similar size office in Columbus, Ohio. We have m- about double that number of people in Montreal, Canada. Wow. We have about a similar size office in Sri Lanka. And we have another similar size office in Belgrade, Serbia, of all places. <laughs> so we are, we are very geographic. And then that doesn't even include, you know, I have a small team in Southeast Asia and a small team in Latin America and other places. Yeah. So you think about those remote people all over the U.S. and Canada. Our customers are mostly in the U.S. and Canada, mostly. Right. Um, but we have individuals working all over the world on our product, in our support team, on professional services, all those kinds of things. So yeah, I, you know, I've been to each of those offices in some cases, multiple times, um, have, you know, we host uh, a really large customer summit once a year. 
uh, in January. And we bring as many of those employees to that summit as we possibly can. But we're also of a size where we can't have uh, a, uh, you know, one company party with everybody at it, uh, especially with that dispersion. Uh, right. So, you know, I, I do do things like all hands meetings every three or four weeks. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a very uh, uh, informal person when it comes to communications. I want people to reach out to me, even if it's on a text or an email or a, or a, or a Teams chat or whatever it is. And so I get a lot of individuals that come to me that way, but I can only do so much, right? I actually need the best people at the company, the ones that are the most important leaders to be carrying that same message uh, and that same culture. And I think we actually have that right now. We're very lucky to have that right now. John, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire at Acumatica? Yeah, and I think hiring, I, I, I would separate that in two categories. There's a hiring category. What are you looking for? And there's absolutely a investing in category. Like those are often different things. Hiring, you know, every role has a balance of individual expertise, um, which is important in some cases. You know, you're not going to hire a, 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 a software engineer to go be your accountant. So you need some individual expertise. But at the same time, do you fit into the way the company culture will work? Um, do you have the openness? Do you have the integrity? Uh, do, are, are you someone people will want to work with? Uh, we take those we take those matters very seriously. Most of my interviewing that I do personally, I'm not even thinking about the individual capability of the person. I'm I'm assuming that by the time they've gotten to me, that's been settled. I'm thinking about do they fit into our culture? Yeah. That is the that is the number one thing I'm hiring for. Once once the, they've checked the box on technical capability and the culture is, again, do I think they would be someone that I'd want to work with? We'll rally people around them, can get, you know, people of disparate, you know, kind of styles and cultures to work with them. And I think that is just a massively important problem. Um, and then I think you, you talk about investing, uh, you know, you get certain individuals who are very good as teams of one and want to be unique, high individual contributor, uh, you know, successful people. I love that. I don't think everybody needs to be a team leader or a manager. Right. I love people that that think that have you, you know really important skills, but don't aspire to being uh, 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 you know a, a director of whatever and having 100 people on their staff because I think that that's a different skill set. So I look very carefully at someone and I think, okay, does that person want to be suited to be have the natural inclination to be a leader, a, a manager? Or do I want to invest in them as an individual and think about their individual skills and the, the impact they can have in a deep way across all kinds of things without worrying about the responsibilities of management? Um, I think those are equally important jobs and you gotta, you got to really kind of help people sort themselves to some extent. How do you kind of, uh, you know, get at that and as, as talking about the investment side? Cause that's people mm -hmm. obviously that have been with you for a while. It, mm -hmm. Is it observation? Do you have a couple of questions that you ask, you know, how do you kind of get under the skin? Well, and it, it's, it's so much easier to, you know, observe people that you work with. Like when you're, when they're in, when you're in the team, when you're in the company, you, you can sort of see, is that person able to um, communicate? I mean, communication is such a core part of it. Can they, can they persuade? Um, can they inspire? And you know, you, you might have someone with the best ideas that can't always persuade others to follow those ideas. Right. Um, it's much harder in an interview. Like an, an interview, you know, you're, there's by nature you're going to get a lot of them wrong, because when you do an interview like that, you find yourself often like you know assessing someone's his history. You you ask them about you know what are some examples of moments that you had where you had to inspire, persuade, communicate, and you can hear those examples until you really see it in action. Sometimes it's hard to assess, and I think. Interviewing is a great, important function, but I think it's just as important to assess people when they get here and decide, okay, sometimes you make a mistake yeah. and how quickly can you uh, kind of uh, 
pivot from that mistake. So, yeah. so I, I, mean, I, I think you have to be like, we, sometimes you spend too much time finding a person. And then unfortunately you realize that when you found that person, they were the wrong one, but you didn't, it was very hard to tell. So yeah, we can all interview and everyone's got their own skills for interviewing. And I don't like some of the interviews people do around, you know, intelligence games and, you know, code something for me on the whiteboard. It's not my style. I want to know about the human person. Like, I think this is a human person that can be impactful and, and, and really, again, persuade and lead. Um, you get that wrong sometimes. You got to be ready to move. Yeah. And be a good fit. Which is, and be a good, uh, all of the above. Yeah, absolutely. John, we're just about out of time, but we do have one last question we always ask our CEO guests. And that's, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who maybe has their eyes on the corner office someday? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, there are pros and cons to the corner office and people should always be like, it seems, it doesn't seem that way, but when you get into it or when you think about it, it's true. Um, the CEO job is a very lonely job mm. and you, you don't have peers. Um, you, it is your neck on the line. Um, if you aspire to that, think about what that feels like. You don't, you know, you don't, you're not going to have, uh, other people to turn to, to back you up or to, to fix it for you. It's just you. So, and I think not everyone has that perspective. And so I, I think, first of all, I always say that to people, like recognize what you're getting into. Okay. Now, if that role sounds fantastic to you, if you really want to be the one who's in the arena, to use that expression, who's fighting the battle, who's that you are responsible for it, it's your neck on the line. And you want to hire, I mean, again, so much of the job is hiring and organizing and inspiring people, as opposed to just, I have the best idea. If that really appeals to you, then you have to be intentional about that. Hmm. You have to you have to decide to take on roles that stretch you. You have to decide to take on functions even that stretch you. I mean, if I hadn't done uh, a, a four years in sales when I was at Microsoft, I'd be much less equipped to be in this job. Um, if I hadn't done, if I hadn't had a, a stint doing effectively HR work, I'd be much less equipped to be in this job. So you realize that as a CEO, your skills have to be so broad, hmm. um, and and you have to be willing to to take chances on those sorts of things. And of course you can't do everything. You have to just the opposite. You got to figure out who are the people I really need to lean in on who are the ones I don't, but saying being intentional and saying, I'm going to take on roles that will stretch my functional sort of knowledge and expertise because I aspire to be that kind of individual. You have to be intentional about that. Yeah. Wise counsel, John Case, CEO of Acumatica. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. It's my pleasure, Brent. Look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.